0: You are now listening to the March 23rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Attributes of God, Walking Our Talk, and Grace Upon Grace. First, let's begin with the Attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. Hello everyone, and welcome to another program in our series, Attributes of God. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. Today we will be studying the last attribute that God shares with us, and that is spirit. It is important to remember that God is spirit. It means that God does not have a body. At the beginning of our study of God's attributes, we looked at the triunity of God there is God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit, separate but unified. All are without a body and are spirit. Jesus says this in John chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. When the Bible speaks of God's face, hands, or any body language, It is using comparison with our bodies that we can understand and relate to. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 44, God is speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Judah who were fleeing to Egypt after the destruction of Jerusalem. And in verse 11, God says, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to set my face against you for woe, Even to cut off all Judah. Let us also look at Acts chapter 7, when Stephen had finished his discourse to the council, and the men were angry at the words he had spoken. And in verses 55 and 56, Luke writes But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In the Old Testament, God's Spirit came upon people to do the work that needed to be done, such as in Numbers chapter 11, when Moses needed help in judging the exiled children of Israel. And in verses 16 and 17, the Lord said, Gather for me seventy men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it alone. But the Spirit of God could leave a person as well, David also cried out to the Lord when he was in anguish over the sin he had committed with Bathsheba, and in Psalm 51, verse 11, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David was afraid that his sin was so great that God would remove his spirit, as he did with Saul in 1 Samuel, chapter 15, verse 23. Samuel said, "Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God had removed his spirit from Saul and allowed an evil spirit to torment him." In the New Testament, when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit was with him, and during the last supper, Jesus said to them in John chapter 14 verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and other believers, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and he permanently indwelled in them. Whereas God is spirit, humans have both a spirit and a body. Dr. Tony Evans, in his book, Victory in Spiritual Warfare, writes about the human spirit. To paraphrase, keep in mind that we are body, soul, and spirit. Upon salvation, the thing in me made new was my spirit. My soul is in the process of being sanctified and made new over time. My soul which is my mind, will, and emotions, can be distorted, like suffering from depression. The work of the new spirit is to pump life into the soul, so eventually the new spirit becomes the dominant influencer in what I think, feel, etc. My spirit pumps the truth of God into my soul, then my soul tells my body to adjust to God's standard, as I allow the new life of the Spirit to dominate and permeate my soul. In James chapter 1, verse 21, he writes, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. This is the Holy Spirit's present and power in our lives. The righteousness of God, made known through His word, must reach from His Spirit into my spirit, feeding it as it grows to dominate my soul. God sanctifies us from spirit to soul to body. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit as well, as Paul states in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, where he writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In closing, God is spirit, and when we were saved, we have a new spirit that communicates with the spirit of truth that helps us learn to live righteously and grow in sanctification. I want to leave you with David's words to the Lord in Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Until next time, God bless you, and goodbye.
1: compare you're our living hope your presence I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves where my heart becomes free yeah, my shame is under your presence, Lord.
0: Next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through True Life Stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God
2: and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. All this material that we're discussing today comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, are authors of this book, And the podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk.
3: So we're here today talking about unmet expectations in our relationship. We have talked about trust over the past few weeks, and we're about to transition into going to our marital mystery tour, Five Keys to Unlock Marital Mysteries, but we're not there yet. So we're going to take a couple of times to talk about unmet expectations in relationship. And many times there, we don't even understand what our expectations are. I know as we got together early in our marriage, probably, I would ask you, what do you want? And you wouldn't You know, the book said that if I asked you what you would want, you'd know what you wanted, and then I could know what you wanted, and then I could meet your expectation.
4: Yeah, you know, some people are really in touch with their expectations. They know very strongly what it is that they want, and I think that you're pretty much that way. You know what you want, and you head directly toward it, and... For some reason, I withhold my expectations. I don't, I'm not in touch with my own expectations. Maybe I'm afraid of being disappointed. Mm -hmm. If I say, wow, I really want to go to the Grand Canyon before I die. You know, maybe that was something that as a kid I really wanted to do. But growing up in a small town in Pennsylvania, I never thought I'd even get west of the Ohio River, yet alone see the Grand Canyon. And so as soon as I would want something, I would try to talk myself out of wanting it and say, you don't really want that. Because I was afraid of being disappointed if I said, yeah, this is what I want.
3: Right. So there are a few different things that cause these unmet expectations. Uh One of them is selfishness. Uh, We're wanting what we want when we want it, regardless of the cost to the other person. And on the receiving end, what happens when you clearly express your expectation your partner fails to comply and says no and says uh, that doesn't – or they say, yes, I'll do something and then they don't follow through. But your expectation is they'll follow through and then that gets into broken trust again because trust is based on behavior not just what I say. It's what I do. And that's why, you know, we talked about this in another podcast, the difference between trust and forgiveness. I can forgive somebody, but I don't necessarily trust them because their behavior hasn't shown that they're trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So it can be selfishness that I just want to do it this way, regardless of what you want. And it's sort of like a three-legged race. I don't even know if people know what those are. But <laughs> in the old times, they used to tie the It was a game. A game. A game that people would tie their leg to each of their one legs together. And so you'd have three basic legs and you'd be trying to do a relay. And um, what happened was you'd usually fall down because one person's pulling you and the You have other to one.
4: cooperate. Yeah. So.
3: <laughs> How about another one? Withholding information. Why would somebody withhold information when they're talking with the partner who supposedly they're supposed to open with?
4: Well, I might withhold information if I am constantly editing myself and I am not, maybe I'm ashamed of something that I want or have done. And so I'm not going to tell you that I, that this is what i did maybe i went out and i spent money that you didn't or we agreed
3: that you weren't going to spend
4: yeah but maybe we yes exactly but i saw this dress and it was a great buy and so i went ahead and bought it but i'm not telling you about it so that's one thing but another thing is that you did something that offended me, and I'm not telling you about it. So you don't know that you offended me, and but I'm walking around with a lot of hurt that you don't know <laughs> that you Not caused. until
3: I walk in the room and I feel like you could cut it with a knife and you're going, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. Right, exactly. Okay. So you withhold information maybe because you don't like conflict or you did something wrong and you're ashamed of it. Uh, those can be difficulties in terms of
4: Right, and I don't I just don't want you to blow up at me. I don't want you to get mad at me. I don't want to tell you that you did something that hurt me and then have you get really defensive or upset at me, me? because I was hurt and then that turns around and turns into a big argument and
3: yeah, I mean, communication is very difficult it's when very you're tricky. when it's uh, icy. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, miscommunication is another one, like a failure to what we call closing the loop, making sure what I said is what you got. And um, I remember <laughs> at Knott's Berry Farm, you took the boys on a ride, and I think I said, oh, I'll meet you right here. And then we decided to take Jessica on a train ride, and so you got off per ride. Expect- uh, no,
4: I got off the ride with the boys, and uh, you weren't where you oh, said you were going okay. to be.
3: But I went with Jessica,
4: and you took Jessica on another ride. And boys- I know.
3: Well, we were tired of just waiting <laughs> around.
4: <laughs> but you didn't do what you said you I, were going to do.
3: I. So that wasn't miscommunication. That was just wrong communication. <laughs> about you. So we went uh what we wandered in the park separately for the next several hours and finally we found Jess.
4: Yeah. The boys and I <laughs> Okay, so at this point the boys were maybe 6 and 8 years old and Jessica was
5: 3. three yeah. And
4: you had taken Jessica on a different ride instead of waiting for the boys and me to get off our ride just wanted and then, to
3: help her pass the time
4: <laughs> so we got off our ride and you and jessica weren't, weren't there dead. and yeah. we waited for about five or ten minutes and we didn't want to go too far from where right. we were so what did you do i kept telling the boys well we need to wait and wait for, for dad. dad right here <laughs> And they were we're we're at an amusement park. They're <laughs> wanting to go on more rides, okay. and I was feeling very anxious. So ah, was this nothing. was yes, it, it sort of ruined the day. <laughs> I'm still angry with you about that. No, I'm I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs>
3: cool. So another one is uh, insensitivity, no understanding of each other's feelings, and walking all over them. Sometimes sarcasm or biting remarks, thoughtless words could be yelling or snapping at each other. I had a bad day. Characterize the mate who expects his own or his partner to endure, submit, love, honor, obey, no matter what, no matter how she's treated. That's great when you're on the side that you're not the one that's having All to Right. We can both submit. have
4: we can both have bad days and until we understand that That we show the results of having a bad day differently.
3: Right. So sometimes I'll come home and I'll just say, honey, I just need you to know I need to veg right now. I had a lot of hard cases uh, counseling today, and I just need a half hour to just watch a news or sports program or something. That's a lot better than just coming in and going, where's dinner?
5: What are we having for
3: dinner? Why aren't we doing this? So we can be insensitive either knowingly or unknowingly.
4: Yeah, or we might say, well, you're a guy. You're not supposed to feel hurt about something. And I can say things that can be cruel and cutting and mean to you and ridicule you, especially the more that I know about you the easier it is for me to use that as a weapon against you and hurt you by saying, well, I know that you did Mm -hmm. such and such, or to stab at a place that hurts
3: you. Yeah,
4: And for you, especially, I think, for young mothers who are with their children all day long, for a husband to come home and just expect...
3: Why isn't the and, whole place cleaned up? How come? What have you been doing all day? You don't have anything to do,
4: right? And I've and, been
3: working all day.
4: And to and then to want sex at the end of all of that, and not expect that that she needs and some time to sit down and have a few minutes to herself, and to understand that she needs. A little bit of pampering or
3: needs a little sensitivity, (laughs)
4: that's right,
3: a little bubble bath. Well,
4: that shouldn't hurt you. I used to also be very sarcastic in my communication with you, too. And I know that sarcasm is something that hurts, or and to. To be in a group of people and to say something sarcastically knowing that I'm going to get a laugh for Mm, it and other people will think it's funny, but it's at your expense, that can be very hurtful.
3: So we're talking about unmet expectations, the causes of them, selfishness, withholding information, miscommunication, insensitivity, family of origin patterns, which that was one of yours. Right. In your family, they threw zingers that were funny. In my family, we just talked straight and didn't have those zingers.
4: Well, and in your family also, um, your mother was very creative and very accommodating and would throw herself into helping you. I know that you've told me how she would help you make these creative costumes and do lots of art projects. And when it came time to give somebody, a, say, a Mother's Day card or a birthday card or a Valentine's Day card, that your mother would help you come up with all these big creative ideas. And, and your family, uh, because your grandfather was a florist, flowers were really a great way of expressing your love and appreciation for somebody. So you'd give them a big bouquet of flowers or a beautiful flower arrangement. And in my family, my mother is very practical and didn't spend a lot of time making greeting cards, for, for instance. And so For Valentine's Day, we would just go out and buy the least expensive pack of Valentine's Day cards that we could and just to sign our name on the back and hand them out to the kids at school. We didn't really make Valentine's cards or give presents to one another within our family. My mother really disliked fresh flowers, because to her, they were just something that was going to die and shrivel up. And so she thought that they were a waste of money. So we have these different expectations of what is meaningful and what a mother does.
3: So, I mean, that can be something that needs to be talked about, because if I value that, I want you to value You'll never value it the same way I do, but I want you to be able to value this gift that I'm giving. Right. At the same time, I want to be sensitive to you and not always give you flowers if you really would rather me give you a coupon to make the bed.
4: (laughs) Exactly.
3: But that's hard for me because that's not my family of origin. Right. But it's been 43 years. So we probably should get some new habits or something.
4: Yeah, that's true. And the thing about our family of origin is that what's normal for me is not necessarily what's normal for you. And some people grew up in a family where they never made the bed. And it's not like that not
3: right or wrong?
4: It's not a right or it's a wrong messy. thing. just <laughs> yeah, There's something for me about getting out of bed in the morning and straightening everything out and having that bed. Gives you order. I know that when I walk into the bedroom, I'm going to have a place that looks serene and put together and I want it that way. Whereas other people, it's just a waste of time and it's not a right or a wrong thing but we can have conflict about it.
3: Okay, so we got a couple more core values. Despite shared love of the Lord, a Christian couple can hold diverse positions based on education or upbringing, influential people in their lives. Bev comes from a conservative church background and was forbidden to dance or play cards, or go with guys who do. (laughs) Bob was accepted Christ later in life, he grew up with restrictions, or the benefit of a Christian upbringing, combining their views and values presents a continual challenge for them, because he has certain freedom within the confines of what he grew up in, that he just doesn't even think about doing certain things, and she's doing things that really offend him. And so... Unless we talk through those kinds of things, we're going to have some pretty difficult times ahead.
4: Right. And even within the Christian church, there are differences of opinion (laughs) on... Smoking cigarettes or drinking alcohol. Some people think a glass of wine is fine. Other people, no, you can't play cards, you can't dance, and you can't uh, even go anywhere near places where those things occur.
3: Right. But we know that don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit is definitely a scriptural principle. That's
4: right. And so the scripture is our guideline
3: So personality, Jerry always expects the worst. Tom thinks everything works out for the best. Glenn believes that he can fix it no matter what, while Stuart rages at the injustice of the world. As a new bride, you were a perfectionist and expected me, Alan, not to make any mistakes. I was the generalist but i learn by making mistakes and you you know graduated magna cum laude and i graduated laude how come so <laughs> basic personalities determine god gives us basic personalities and we need to embrace them even though we're very different and usually opposites attract
4: well that's true i think the fact that you are internally very intrinsically motivated and that you Go for things that when you see something that you want to do, you go after it. And I admire that in you. I love that in you. But it also scares me (laughs) when I'm anxious and I want, because I'm a perfectionist, I want to know that things are going to work out right from the very beginning. And when you're starting something new, there are no guarantees. And so with your personality, you're willing to take those risks and go after something new. Whereas for me, that's really scary. I want more of a guarantee (laughs) that things are going to work out okay. And sometimes you just can't know that. You have to trust that God is working in your partner and that he's in charge.
3: So our personalities play into these unmet expectations. We're going to talk, the next time we have a podcast, we're going to be talking about the things that can flatten out the bumps of these unmet expectations. And I'll look forward to meeting with you again, Polly, to
2: Walk Our Talk.
4: Okay. See you next time.
2: Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delph at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session, a one-on-one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
3: soul gospel ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing producing the program or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office you don't have to be an expert we are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn if you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer or even a reviewer please contact us at 602-866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Grace for the Giver. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David.
6: Today we come to a verse from that Advent guide, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that talks about Jesus' coming in a way that totally transforms The way we view money. Now, as soon as I use that word money, I realize I am walking on delicate ground. So I know there are some guests who are with us today, maybe friends or family members, others who are just exploring Christianity, and immediately some of you might think, of course, churches, all they talk about is money. Others who are Christians may be tempted to think the same thing. And most of us, if we're honest, don't really want to talk about money. We want to spend our money the way we think is best. We don't even like the idea of a conversation about how we should approach finances. And the reality is there's a reason for that. Our money is pretty close to our heart. We wouldn't say that, but Jesus said that. Where your treasure is, there your what will be also. There your heart will be. So whether we want to admit it or not, our hearts are pretty intertwined with our money, which makes this pretty delicate ground. And all the more so in a month where we as a church are challenging each other to give at the end of this year in greater ways than we've given all year. But my hope, my prayer is that in the next few minutes, this delicate ground will turn into delightful ground. So my hope, my prayer is in the next few minutes to the power of God's word, we might see that it's actually really good to talk about money. It's really good for us. It's really good for others. And it's really good for the glory of God. What I aim to show you in the next couple of minutes is that the coming of Jesus. So this is at the top of your notes. If you have bulletin you received when you came in, you're trying to turn it over What I am to show you in the next couple of minutes is that the coming of Jesus radically changes our perspective on giving. Or you could put money in that blank if you want, giving money. So Advent, the celebration of the coming of Christ, radically, read totally, completely and wonderfully changes our perspective on giving and money. So let me show this to you, I wanna invite you actually to read this verse from our Advent guide aloud with me. So it's one of the most beautiful verses in all of the Bible describing the coming of Jesus. So I'm going to put it up here on the screen so we can say it together at the same time across Washington saying 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 together. You ready? Here we go. It's on the screen. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Oh, what a verse. Now get the picture. Look at the grace of Jesus. He was rich. Had all the good that heaven could offer. Yet he chose to put on a robe of humanity and become a man, a Baby, a screaming, crying, hungry, tired, bed baby. Or he would grow up working with his hands as the son of a carpenter and eventually be mocked, beaten, scourged, spit upon, and crucified on a cross. Jesus became poor. Why? So that you and I might become rich. This is the gospel message. Jesus became poor so that you and I could become rich. Now, not rich in a worldly sense. This verse is not saying Jesus became poor, died on a cross so that we could have huge houses and great cars. That's not what this means. This verse is talking about spiritual riches and spiritual wealth far beyond anything this world can ever compare or compete with. And what I want you to see Is that this verse about Christmas? So this is a verse about the coming of Christ. It's in this Advent Guide. It appears in the middle of some of the clearest teaching on giving and money in all the Bible. Which is why I make the statement that the coming of Jesus radically, totally, completely, wonderfully changes our perspective on giving. So look at the context around this verse with me. Start with me. If you got your Bible open or look on with somebody else, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. So The lead up. I want you to listen to the lead up to verse 9. Start with me in verse 1. The Bible says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Then he says, for you know, by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you see it? So just a little explanation here. Paul, who's writing this letter to the church, a place called Corinth, is collecting an offering from them and other churches for the impoverished church in Jerusalem. So the church in Jerusalem was in the middle of famine, starving. So at the end of 1 Corinthians, the first letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he told them to begin collecting an offering. Now he's on his way to see them. So he spends two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, encouraging them to give. We won't read all these two chapters, but go ahead and jump jump to the end of chapter 9. So you can see, we just read how he started this picture of giving. Look at how he ends. Chapter 9, verse 6. Paul writes, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Do you feel like the tone here? You need to feel bad for all you have and start giving more before you feel worse. Kind of talk like, That's not the way Christians talk about giving. Look at the words at the end of chapter 9. Bountiful, cheerful, abounding, giving freely, increasing harvest, being enriched in every way, overflowing in thanksgiving, surpassing grace, giving thanks for God's inexpressible gift, exclamation point. Giving is glorious for the Christian. Just think about this, so follow with me in your notes on the back of your bulletin there, hear how the coming of Jesus radically changes our perspective on giving and money in at least three ways. So one, followers of Jesus give out of the overflow of grace. Christians give, why? Because they're overflowing with the grace of God. So the beginning of chapter eight, what we read just a minute ago, Paul starts describing how these churches in Macedonia were giving. Listen to how he describes them. In verse 1, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Then you go down further, the end of chapter, end of verse 6, he talks about this act of grace. Verse 7, Paul says, see also that you excel in this act of grace. He's saying giving is an act of grace, and that's what leads into verse 9, which we said together a minute ago. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So follow this. This is huge. Followers of Jesus are not motivated to give By guilt. Followers of Jesus are motivated to give by grace. The whole picture here is God's supernatural love in the hearts of these Macedonian Christians just overflowing through their lives. God's supernatural love overflowing through their lives. This is God's grace at work in these Macedonian Christians. Now, you might think that because Paul was using them as an example of giving, that they were wealthy churches, but that's not the case. In fact, the exact opposite is true. These churches in Macedonia, so that refers to places like Philippi, Thessalonica, they were abysmally poor. They'd been ravaged by wars, plundered by the Romans. When the gospel came to them, they faced fierce persecution. You put it all together, they faced a combination of high taxes, low economic status, slavery, and persecution that had reduced their lives and families to Extreme poverty. Did you hear those words that describe them? Severe affliction, extreme poverty. But then listen to verse 2 In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Did you catch that math equation? For the Macedonians, severe trial plus extreme poverty equals abundant joy plus rich generosity. How does that happen? The answer is grace. This is what God's grace does. God's love so transforms hearts in such a way that people who have nothing give everything. What would happen if God gave us this kind of heart with all the resources we have in this part of the world? Supernaturally, out of the overflow of God's grace in our hearts. We would give willingly, this is how followers of Jesus Give. we give willingly the coming of Jesus causes us to give willingly listen to verse 3 they gave according to their own means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints <laughs> Do you hear that? a hundred times do people come to church and just like beg for the offering I can't wait to take up the offering so good that's what I've been looking forward to all week long that's God's grace at work we give willingly because of the abundance of God's generosity toward us. We know God's love toward us, so we want to show God's love toward others. This is why we give. We know how generous God has been with us, so we want to be generous. This is an otherworldly way to think about, look at giving. We give because of God's abundant generosity and we give according to and beyond our ability. It's exactly what verse three says. And if you read down, verse 12 in chapter eight says the same thing. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So follow this. Christian giving is not just about how much you give, but it's about stretching beyond your ability to give. So think about it pretty simply. Imagine somebody giving a million dollars. You might think, Now that is an extravagant gift. Absolutely, it's a lot of money, but is it an extravagant gift if that person made $10 million during the year? When you think about it, somebody who gives $5,000, who only makes $30,000 a year, has given a far more extravagant gift And the key is they do it of their own accord, like not because they have to, because they want to willingly because of the grace of God in their hearts. As followers of Jesus, we give willingly, we give generously. See that phrase in verse two? They've overflowed in a wealth of generosity. The same thing comes up in chapter nine. Remember verse six there? The point is this, like don't miss the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Bountiful sowing, bountiful reaping, that's a reference to generous giving. If a farmer sows a little seed, he reaps a little harvest. Pretty simple, if he sows great seed, he reaps a great harvest. So what type of harvest do you want in your life? Here's the picture, get the point, the Bible says, generous giving to God leads to greater glory for God and greater joy for us. Generous giving to God, leads to greater glory for God and greater joy for us. So do we want that? Like, do you want greater glory for God and greater joy for you? Followers of Jesus want these things. So we give. Like, please hear this. This is so different from every message this world is selling, you and me, all week long. We got a few minutes with God's word open to hear a very different message than we hear Everywhere else around us, this world is saying constantly from every direction to every one of us, You will be glad when you get. You will be happy when you get more, when you get better, when you get nicer. That's what will make you happy. And I'm bleeding with you in the couple minutes we have today, based on the authority of God's word. Don't buy it. Like, don't buy it. It is a lie. It's a lie we're swimming in an ocean of deceit. Don't be deceived. God is saying in his word right now, like hear what God is saying. He has designed your heart not to be glad in getting more. God has designed your heart to be glad in giving more. And it's just totally countercultural way to think. And and here, this is why this is good news. This why it's Delightful ground for us to talk about this because God is not saying give to us because he's against us. God is saying give to us because he is for us. He wants to save us from the lies that are coming at us in all these different ways. This is the love of God that he speaks like this to us. Now, listen to verses eight and following here in chapter 9. He says, God is able to make all grace. Listen to all the all's here. All grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower Bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. This is so good. See the picture here. See what God's word is teaching us here. God gives enough for us, and God gives excess for others. God gives enough for us. He makes all grace abound to you, so you have all that you need. God supplies seed to the sower, bread for food. A Christian in you have, in God, the God of the universe, a Father in heaven who is committed to providing for you. Wants to make all grace abound to you. So that, now go down to verse 11. The Bible says you'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous in every way. So ask the question now, okay, so why then do we have more than we need? And the answer in the Bible is clear, but it's not the answer of the American dream. In fact, it's totally different. And not even the average American Christian answer. American Christian answers that question why do we have more than we need? Well, the answer is we have more than we need so that we can have more stuff nicer stuff, bigger stuff, better savings accounts, more comforts, more luxuries. But that kind of thinking is not from God. God says, I give you more than you need so that you can be generous to those in need. God gives to us generously so that we can give to others extravagantly. He gives enough for us, he gives excess for others. Like Think about John Wesley's illustration here. Maybe you've heard his name before, John Wesley would become a famous preacher in England, the founder of the Methodist church, 1800s. In 1731, Wesley started limiting his expenses so he would have more money to give to the poor. He had a regular kind of setup for tithing, but then he wanted to limit his expenses to give as much as possible to the poor. So he decided he was gonna live and tithe off 28 pounds a year. And then he recorded that year his income was 30 pounds. Living expenses, even with the tithe, were at 28. So he had two pounds above and beyond that, give it away. The next year though, his income doubled, but he still lived on 28 pounds. He gave 32 pounds away. The third year, his income jumped to 90 pounds. Fourth year, 120 pounds, but he continued to live on 28 pounds. Gave away 92 pounds to the poor that year. Basically preached that Christians should not just tithe, but give away all extra income once Family and creditors were taken care of. He believed that with increasing income, the Christian standard of giving should increase, not his standard of living. So he started that practice at Oxford, continued it throughout his life. Even when his income eventually rose into the thousands of pounds, he lived simply and quickly gave his surplus away. One year's income was slightly over 1,400 pounds. He gave away all but 30. The biographer said he was afraid of laying up treasures on earth so the money went out as quickly as it came in when he died in 1791 most of the 30,000 pounds he had earned in his lifetime he had given away now that is a very different way to live i just think about us what if we believed that an increase in salary doesn't necessitate an increase in standard of living what if we viewed an increase in salary as an increase in our standard of giving this is where Second Corinthians 8 and 9 is so exciting In a setting like this where God has given us so much compared to the rest of the world, people might say, was that wrong? Is it wrong that we have relative wealth? And the Bible doesn't say it is. The Bible does caution us that our money can quickly control our hearts and consume our lives. But 2 Corinthians 8 9 here is saying, God has been generous to you. He's given money. So in a sense, it's like, make money. Tons of money, by the grace of God, make a lot of money because that's all the more provision from God to give away for others' good and His glory. So don't feel bad for making money. Like, feel great about making money to give away for others' good and for God's glory. God has given us the ability to give so generously. This is what God's Word is saying to us in this setting. Like, our financial guys sent me information this week based on the average household incomes if just those who are giving now, so just people who are giving of their income, which we saw earlier this year in a sermon on, on Christian giving, which if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back just to hear what the Bible teaches about. showed how like tithe is like the base of Christian giving, not like a ceiling, but a floor. It's kind of where Christian giving starts. So we kind of walked through that in the Word. What if we actually like, did what we were seeing in the Word? In this world, to see the ability God has given us to give for others good for his glory and for our joy so i'll just share a bit of personal testimony here and i hesitate to share this for multiple reasons which i think will make sense in a moment but when i wrote my first book radical i i put in the front of that book that any and all royalties that i would receive would be given away for the glory of christ among nations now keep in mind at that point i thought maybe my mom and a few other people would read this book so don't think, well, that was noble of you. It Like, I, I really didn't think, didn't feel like much of a sacrifice at all. I had no idea that millions of people would read that book around the world, which, do the math, means a lot of money from that book. But I couldn't and still can't touch any of it. Not a penny, because I'd written that in front of the book. Now, I'd like to think if I know... If I'd known then what I know now, I'd have still written it in front of the book. Like I'd like to think that I would still write, but I sure am glad that by God's grace. And so the reason I share it, like what I've discovered in the process is the joy of being able to give for the glory of Christ in ways beyond what I ever could have imagined in such a way that in the three books I've written since then and the one I just finished this week, I've written the same thing in the front and I hope this next book sells a lot because because i'm not getting a thing it's all going toward the glory of christ in the nation so now obviously maybe that's an extreme example but i would just encourage you in your life all of us like what do we consider how god has given us in this part of the world such opportunities to give generously and willingly and just realize this is a blessing from god that we get to be a part of this which leads to this next one in your notes and this one's just way over the top so followers of Jesus don't just give willingly and generously, we give cheerfully. We, we, chapter nine, verse seven, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. <laughs> like just so you know, that word cheerful in the original language of the New Testament literally means like hilarious, like hilariously. I love that picture. Like just picture us passing the offering baskets. <laughs> this is so awesome. And just everybody's smiling at you. And they're like, yes, yes, me. Like. Jesus totally changes our perspective on giving. So just to be clear, because I know we live in a pretty sensitive economic climate today, like this is not socialism we're talking about here. This is not, preaching socialism, this is not limited to receiving and forced giving. That would actually miss the whole point of this passage. What the Bible is saying here is that we're not forced by God to give. We are freed by God to give totally transformed from the inside out. We're free. We're free from the love of money and the desire for more to give. We're freed by God in this way. Jesus totally changes our perspective. So it's it's not, what do I have to give? Like, pastor, just tell me. What box do I need to check? Do I need to tithe? If so, do I tithe off the gross or the net? Tell me, gross or net? That this is not the way the followers of Jesus approach giving, asking, what do I have to give? My followers of Jesus say, how much can I give? How much can I give? I want to give as much as I can out of the overflow of grace. That's just point one. We've got to fly through these last two. All right, so second way, Jesus radically changes our perspective on giving. Followers of Jesus give as a demonstration of the gospel, which is really the crux of the verse we read at the beginning together. So for those of you who are here today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you may not know what we mean when we say gospel. So here's what we mean. There is one true God who created the world and all that is in it, including you and me. Created all of us. And all of us have decided to, in our lives, turn away from God's ways to our own ways. Bible calls sin. We have done things our own ways instead of God's ways. and As a result, we are separated from God. And if we die separated from God, we will spend eternity separated from God. And all of his goodness, love, grace, mercy. Good news is God has not left us alone in our separation from him. God has come to us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus has lived a life none of us could ever live, a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And then though we had no sin for which to pay a price he did not deserve to die. He chose to die. In fact, that's the very reason he came. Jesus came to die for our sins, to pay the price that we deserve to pay for our sins. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus died on a cross for you and for me. And then the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death so that eternal life is available to all who put their faith in Jesus. He became poor so we might become rich. I'm talking rich in a way that nothing in this world can compare or compete with. Jesus laid down his life for us so we might have eternal life riches with him. So today, this is the gospel. That word means good news. This is the good news. And I invite you today to believe it, to receive it, and to become rich. Like today, you can become rich. I know the thousands of people that are gathered just right now, like some, maybe many of you, do not know the riches of being in a relationship with God. You're far from God. Hear his love in bringing you to this place today to hear that Jesus has paid the price so that you can be rich in relationship with God say, how do I do that? Like, what what do I have to do? God is not trying to exact a payment from you. He has done this out of his love and grace, mercy toward you. You simply receive this gift say, I have sinned against you. I trust your love and what Jesus did on a cross for me. I want the life you offer me in him, just faith in him. I invite you to put your faith in him. Believe this gospel and when you do so then follow this when you do and for all who have life in Jesus follow this Now that Jesus his life is ours. It just makes sense for us to do what he did And we don't live like the rest of the world anymore We do what he did which means we now sacrifice our rights for others Think about this in relation to giving. If we're not careful when it comes to giving, we can start to think, well, wait a minute. Don't I have a a right to this or that in this world? Don't I have a right to do this or that in this world? And sure, we have rights to all kinds of things. We're Americans after all. But the gospel compels us at some point, at some level, to lay down our rights for others. Realizing that, yes, we could have more here or there. But at some point, Jesus in us compels us To lay aside what we want for what others need. At which point others think, well, how much do I need to lay aside? And there's there's not, there's not an easy answer for that. I appreciate the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. As followers of Jesus, it just makes sense to sacrifice our rights for others and to spend our resources on others. Do you see what's happening in this passage? The beauty here, chapter 8, verse 4, these churches in Macedonia are taking part in the relief of the saints And there were suffering, starving Christians in Jerusalem. And these Christians in Macedonia, and now Corinth, were giving, they were spending their resources for their relief. That's what chapter nine, verse 12 says, the ministry of this service is supplying the needs of the saints. People in need are receiving supply because of you, because of God's grace and your giving. This is breathtaking. When you think about it, that we, through our giving, Get to bring others relief, supply, help who are in need.